0: Thank you, Michael. Well, good evening, folks. Really good to be with you again to open the Scriptures together and to see what they have to say to us. And thank you for the reading. We've had a look. We, in, in church in Kilimarsh, we've spent the last uh, year, I suppose it is, on a Tuesday night looking through John's Gospel, and this is the last section which um, we had come to. And uh, in that, I think we see some really wonderful things that hopefully will both encourage and challenge us as we come to have a look at the Scriptures again this evening. Now, I'm sure you will have gathered as you've come to the passage that the two main people who we're reading about in this passage are the Apostle Peter and the Lord Jesus, and we'll see a little bit about um, who we have assumed is, is John the Apostle as well as we come to see at the end of the passage. When we come to this passage, you will probably, if you know your Bible at all, you will know that Peter was the disciple who had been one of the first ones that the Lord Jesus called. He was with the Lord Jesus through most of His earthly teaching here when He was went about in Galilee, teaching the Word of God, and He was, he was a, a very interesting character. And I think a lot of us can perhaps identify with Peter in many ways. He's a man, when you see Him and you read about Him in the gospel records, He's a man of very great devotion and deep spiritual insight. He is the one who volunteers when the Lord Jesus said, Who do you say that I am? The Christ, the Son of the living God. Yet He's a man who at times we could probably say, and many of us can identify with this, that he would open his mouth before putting his brain into gear. He has plenty confidence at times. He is a man who is quite happy in the presence of a band of Roman soldiers to go about swinging a sword. Perhaps that's overconfidence. He is a man who had great privilege. He was one of the three who saw some of the more wonderful miracles of the Lord. He was taken into that room where Jairus' daughter was dead, and he saw that miracle. He was taken to the mountain of transfiguration. And later on, he speaks of being eyewitnesses of His majesty. Can you imagine that? And yet, Peter's the one who is marked by denial and failure. When you come to the latter chapters of John's gospel, there you see something of Peter having come through that period where he did deny the Lord and knowing the shame of that failure, but we see his recovery. He was one of the two who ran to the tomb, and there saw the evidence of the risen Lord Jesus and he is one who Paul will later on speak of in 1 Corinthians 15 about the fact that the Lord appeared to Peter. He is in the face of perhaps a failure that we would readily write people off for, an example of a God who would give us second chances. And we're very grateful at times that's third and fourth and fifth chances. When you come to John 21, they were on the time, the Lord Jesus has risen from the dead, He has appeared to the disciples, and the disciples have gone into Galilee, and there they have gone fishing, and at that night they caught really nothing. They had a toiling evening, they caught no fish, and the Lord Jesus appears to them, and there when His appearance, when they are obedient to what He says to them, there is the miraculous provision of this great catch of fish. And they are to learn the lesson that they can do absolutely nothing without him, absolutely nothing. And so they are on the beach, and the fire has been kindled, and they are the, the the fish have been cooked. And that that breakfast is now finished, the Lord now turns to Peter to speak to him. And in many ways, I think the other disciples would probably be there. They would at least be within earshot. And so, this is in the face of, I suppose, a public denial of the Lord. It is also, in many ways, a very public recovery. And so, the Lord Jesus addresses Peter, said to Simon Peter, not addressing him, you will note, as Peter, but addressing him in that name, which had been known from before he knew the Lord as Simon, son of John. Simon, the pebble rather than the rock. And there are so many other examples of that in our Bible of those who had their names changed and what that might mean. For here there is some sort of admission, I think, in the name that the Lord uses of that place that Peter would put himself to in humility before the Lord. So, what are we going to see from this passage when we have a look at it together? Well, I'll see something of, if you like, Peter's commission into service. So, we're going to have a look at that, first of all, from verse 15 down to verse 17, we're going to see Peter's commission. And there's some interesting lessons to learn from that. Then, from verse 18 to 19, we're going to see Peter's commitment This is not something which was going to be something which was to be approached in a half-hearted manner. For Peter to rise to the commission that the Lord Jesus had given him was mean that he was going to die, and that is foretold very clearly in the verses which we read. And then in the section towards the end of the chapter where John is involved, we're going to see Peter's concern, and then at the end, very briefly, we'll have a look at John's conclusion to his gospel. So, we'll see Peter's commission, his commitment, and his concern. So, in verse 15 to 17, we have his commission, and that is a commission which the Lord Jesus is going to give to him, and it is going to be based upon the fact that he loves the Lord Jesus. You will be very well aware, I'm sure, that in the earlier chapters of John's gospel, the Lord Jesus said this, that if you love me, You will keep my commandments. And we'll see this very much in view as we have a look down through these verses. But again, you will have noted, I'm sure, from the passage that here the Lord Jesus asks Peter three questions. And you might think, well, these are rather repetitious, aren't they? What's the point here? But I would like to point out to you, in fact, that these are not three questions which are just mere repetitions of each other. There is a particular point to each of these questions, and perhaps there are three of them because they are matching the fact that Peter denied the Lord on these three occasions. But a key to understanding what the Lord Jesus is saying to Peter here is, unfortunately, going to have to have a little delve into some of the original languages. Now, before you switch off completely, please let me assure you that this actually is relevant to the understanding of the passage. Now, we do, in English, have this word which we see in the passage here, love. When you go into the original New Testament languages, there are a number of different words for love, and they are translated similarly in our English New Testament. And so, the two of these which are here within this passage are two words which are very commonly used within the New Testament, but they have very distinctive meanings. So, the first of these is what the Lord Jesus asks in the first question. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, the word which He uses there is the word, which is in the Greek, it is Agape, and I'm not going to be pretending to know these. I'm very much dependent upon those who write the helps to understand the original languages. But this idea, agape, that is that word which we tend to use to refer to the love of God in its purest form. Now, that's a word through a very strange way that I have been aware of as that original word from when I was very young, and Ruth will understand that very well. Because if any of you who were brought up as kids in Christian circles in the late 70s and 80s may well have been acquainted with the whole idea of the music machine. Now, the music machine was a a scriptural-based song uh, ministry, which was for teaching kids about a number of different things. For example, teaching about the fruit of the Spirit, and it was based in a fictional land called Agape Land. How interesting is that? And so, this is the whole idea of a sphere of the love of God. It is love which is divine in origin. And in fact, the Lord Jesus uses that word on the first two occasions. It is that word which He uses in the upper ministry, which He says, if you love Me, if you have that divine love, you will obey My commandment. And when Paul is writing about the characteristics of love, as we read them in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where he says that love is pure, is kind, and so on, these that you commit, it is that, it's again, it is that word. It is word, It is love of a divine nature. The other word which he uses is a word which is perhaps less strong. It is the word filio, And that is the word, in fact, that Simon Peter uses to reply to the Lord. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And that is a word which really encompasses a different idea of an affection, an emotional attachment, if you like, a brotherly love. It has absolutely nothing to do with, if any of you are thinking some sort of thing that sounds like a McDonald's sandwich or a filio fish, it's got nothing to do with that at all. It is a word which means love. And it is a lesser word than the word that the Lord Jesus uses. And perhaps we get the idea that Peter can't quite bring himself to rise to that challenge of that divine love that the Lord Jesus is asking him about. And so, he uses this lesser word. Perhaps in many ways, filio. And that natural affection would be something which would be expected. But agape, that divine love, is something which is only divinely produced and it indeed is a sign of having experienced the new birth. Can I challenge you? How deep and of what nature is your love for the Lord? See, this is not something which is the product of an emotional experience. The love of the Lord Jesus is speaking about here is that self-same love that He has for us, and that is self-sacrificial love. It is a willingness if we are going to express the fact that we would love the Lord even in that same way, that we are willing to suffer what He suffered, to give as He gave, to deny one's own interest for the interest of others, because that is exactly what He's done for us to suffer for us, to give Himself for us, to look on our interests to the neglect of His own. So, the first time the Lord Jesus asks Him, Simon, do you love me more than these? It is not very clear what the Lord Jesus is meaning when He says it, more than these. What are the these? And there are a couple of different suggestions of that. It could be that He is looking around, given the fact that they have gone back to the fishing that they were called from. Is He saying, Simon, do you love me more than this fishing paraphernalia, this part of an old life? And I would say that I find it difficult to understand how the Lord Jesus would use the word agape, the divine love in relation to that. I wonder whether he's actually looking around at the group of men that are standing round that fire and saying, Simon Peter, you once said that you would follow me and you would die, and though all forsake me, I will never forsake you. He had proudly boasted of the extent of his love and had been found to be wanting. And so perhaps the Lord Jesus here is be asking Simon, Simon, are you still saying that? And the challenge is, to the extent of His love for the Lord, and do, in comparison to other things, do we love Him the foremost? This is a challenge, of course, not of word. For in these things, words can really be very cheap indeed. It is a challenge to us in our deeds and the way that we would live. Who or what, if anything, do you love more than Christ? There are many things that take up large parts of our life, are there not? Our work hobbies, families, and they are all right in their place. But the challenge here to each one of us is who genuinely has first place in your life and in your affections? Simon Peter, do you love me more than these? And so, Peter, Simon then replies to him, Lord, you know that I love you. You know, and it's, all, it's perhaps a little understating, but it's almost in regard to the word love. He's saying, Lord, you know that I'm fond of you. He cannot bring himself to reply in that same way. So, the second question is asked, and we'll come to the replies in a minute from the Lord. The second time, we just asked Him straightforwardly, Simon, do you love me? Now, it's not the extent. It is, in fact, it's an absolute question. It is His devotion and the object of His affections being challenged. It's not now in comparison to others round about. The question is a very direct one. Do you love me? Let me ask you this. If somebody from out with your life and out your circle of friends, family, whatever, were to come and were to watch your life for a week, what would they conclude? Would they, in looking upon your life, conclude, that's someone who loves the Lord? And we call upon one whom, having not seen, we say that we love, but that love is really only known by the actions which it prompts. And so we're back to where we started, are we not? If you love me, you will obey my commandments. The third time, when the Lord speaks to Simon in this regard, He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And now this time, the Lord takes Simon's word and uses it. And so, the question comes to him now, Simon, son of John, are you even fond of me? And perhaps you can now understand why Simon, Peter, at this point got rather upset. He's challenging us even to the word that he would himself would use. Are you really even fond of and so, these questions come to us that are challenged, as I'm sure they would have been, they were very clearly to Simon Peter on that day. But they are part of bringing him to the point where he would really understand his dependence upon the Lord and the fact that there would be no pride left in him at all. And at that point, he's ready to be commissioned. So, what are the three commands that come as the background of this? Well, the Lord Jesus says in response to Simon's response to Him, He says three things. He says, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, and feed my sheep. So, here we have a commission from the Good Shepherd. And you can have a look back into John chapter 10, and there see how the Lord would deal with His sheep, and you can see how tenderly, even in this regard, He's dealing with Peter in a time when he is still recovering from his failure, he is called to, to feed the lambs. That is, the young ones, that he might be bringing food which is appropriate to them. And those, those of us who would seek to bring food, that is spiritual food, to those who are younger in the faith, we know that it needs to be food which is appropriate for them. He is saying, Tend and care for my sheep. That is those who are that bit older who have a need of care perhaps in, in a wider sense, in a different sense from those who are younger. They need to be led. They need to be cared for. They have a different set of concerns. And yet Simon is encouraged that he would be doing that as well. And thirdly, he says, feed my sheep. The older ones are in need of feeding too. And you will note, of course, that in each occasion he says this, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Those who are called and commissioned into Christian service, particularly those who are going to deal in this way, in a pastoral and in a shepherding nature, need to remember that, that those who we are caring for belong to the Lord, they are His they have been bought with His precious blood, and they are those who are in need of care appropriate to them. And while we see some wonderful things, you only have to go a few pages over in your Bible, and there come to the early chapters of the book of the Acts, and you see Peter standing up, and he preaches amazing sermons, and there are thousands get saved. But the focus of this commission for Simon Peter was that he was to be a shepherd pastoral care was that which was to mark Peter's life. And you see that when you look into the letters which he wrote. In 1 Peter chapter 2, he speaks about being fed with the pure spiritual milk, that of the Word of God. In Second Peter chapter 1, he speaks of the necessity of those to whom he is writing being reminded of the truth of the Word of God and being fed and being nourished and being built up by it. 1 Peter chapter 5 when he's speaking to elders, those who are effectively under shepherds to the great shepherd. He speaks about them having to exercise oversight, having an awareness of what is going on in amongst the flock of God's people, of not wanting to do that for, for monetary gain or for power, and the fact that they need to be an example to the flock. And yes, Peter did great things in his preaching, and there are many, many preachers, many, many people who are really quite prepared to stand forth on, the, on, the, on the, the pulpit and preach the word of God. But the real need amongst the people of God is for those who would have this shepherd nature, who would be prepared to take the time and to be among the flock and to be aware of them and to be able to meet their needs, to feed them food which is appropriate for those who are young and those who are older, though the care that they need and the tending and the leading that they require. And that was the commission which the Lord gave to Peter as he would come to his recovery. In verses 18 and 19, we come to another part of that commission, do we not, which is the the commitment. The Lord Jesus had already said in His ministry that if they persecute me, they will also persecute you. And we see in these verses here where the Lord Jesus speaks of a prophecy of Peter's martyrdom, that there is a day coming when he's going to be taken out, led by the hand of those that he did not want to be led, led to a place where he'd rather not be led, and there it's very clear that he is going to lay down his life. And of course, the church history would say to us that, in fact, Peter was crucified upside down. He would not be crucified, so he would say, in the same way that his Lord was. So, he was crucified upside down. And what does the Lord say after that? Follow me. Well, you could say, well, you know, that's not really a very good sales job, is it? After having given him a job to do, a remit to look after the Lord's people, you think there might be something in it for Peter, do you not? Well, say, Peter, what I'm going to tell you is this, that ahead of you is martyrdom. And so this is going to have to be something which is going to come with a great measure of commitment to the Lord in that. He's not promised ease or wealth or health. There is very clearly a cost to be counted for the fact that he is going to serve the Lord in this way. And let us never kid ourselves. Now, when we look into the gospel records particularly, the demands of the Lord Jesus are this. It's not, come to me and everything's going to be all right, your life will be a bed of roses. What he says is this, if anyone will follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. A real test of love, of agape whosoever seeks to save his life will lose it. Whosoever loses his life for my sake will find, and I can never, ever read that verse without thinking about Jim Elliot. And the fact that he and his companions are ready to go to the jungles of South America, and there, for the sake of reaching out with the message of the gospel, lay down their life for them. And so, the call of the Lord is this. We perhaps live in a day when this call is minimized. Because when Jesus calls a man or a woman, He calls us to die. At least to self. And maybe also, in reality, physically. There are many men and women in the persecuted church across our world for whom this is a day and daily thing that they have to face, that to share the message of the gospel, to share faith in Christ would put their life in danger, and they are willing and ready to step out and do that when at times we are too scared to speak to our neighbors across the field. what do we know of a faith and a love that is that radical? Follow me. From verse 20 down to verse 23, John is brought into the scene, and perhaps Peter and the Lord are now walking away from the group, and John is following. Peter is aware, perhaps, that John has heard all that has gone on, We could surmise that it's John because he is the one who was one of the apostles. He was at the table, reclining at the table. It is though he is the one who questioned, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? And he says in verse 24 that this disciple is the one who's bearing witness about these things. He is writing this gospel. So, we can conclude that it is John the apostle who has been referred to. And while Peter becomes aware of what's going on and the challenge that the Lord has just presented him with, very quickly, he seems to have his eyes a little bit off the ball and begins to get worried about John and and what's going on with him. We are to keep our eyes fixed on Christ. Of course, Peter, as you perhaps will remember, had a very, very apt lesson of this earlier in his Christian experience. When the Lord said to him, Peter, step out the boat, and he did. And for these first few steps, he walked on the water. But then he took his eyes off the Lord, and he began to sink. And we hear his cry, Lord, save me. And the Lord put out his hand and pulled him up. And Peter had to learn that lesson, and he would have to learn it again here. And if we do not keep our eyes on Christ, if we keep our eyes on one another. We know that all that's going to happen is that we will have disappointment and distraction, and perhaps even at times, unfortunately, annoyance. And so, when Peter saw John, he says to Jesus, what about this guy? Now, you've just told me that I'm going to die. What about this guy? What's he going to do? You said, what's going to happen to me? What about John? Is he going to have to lay down his life too? Is he going to face the same? Is it going to be fair? The answer is very clear. And I'm paraphrasing here, Peter, mind your own business. Because that essentially is what the Lord says to him. If it is my will that he remains until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. You see, our obedience to the call of the Lord Jesus is an individual matter. It should not be contingent upon what others round about us are, or at times, if we like to confess, what irks us more, people aren't doing. And we at times, do we not, we huff and puff a bit. And we really start to think about, well, I don't know why I'm bothering doing this, or I don't even bother doing And you understand very well what I'm getting at. But we have to remember that even in that which we are doing, we are all at best unprofitable servants. And while we are to be concerned about others and for their welfare, that's part of the shepherd that we've seen in relation to the service that the Lord has given us to do, We are to be focused on Him and on obediently seeing through what He has given us to do. And so, the day we have dangers of focusing on each other rather than the Lord bring to us a concern about what others are or aren't doing. We are really called to faithfulness, called to what God has called us to do. That's the whole idea of what the New Testament principle of stewardship is, that which we have been given by God to see through, and He expects us to see it through. And we also at times, and looking upon others, we get hung up upon the fact, you know, what they are doing is really what I would quite like to do in the church, even if that's not really the gift and the service that you've been given by God to do. And so, it's important that we get on with what we've been given to do, and we don't get hung up and try to do stuff that we haven't been given to do. Of course, what's even more interesting here is the fact that uh, if we are to assume that the fact there were only three of them in this conversation, which is Peter, the Lord, and John, uh, I'm sure that the source of the gossip which followed was not our Lord, and John wouldn't be the source of the gossip either. So, Peter, unfortunately, is the source of a little bit of gossip. And it says here, "'So the saying spread abroad.'" among the brothers, that this disciple was not to die, yet Jesus did not say that. And so, Peter had taken what the Lord had said to him and had embellished it with a little bit of hyperbole to make it into the fact that the Lord had said that John would not die, when in fact, that is nothing of the course. And it is just a very quick reminder to make sure that what we do say to one another is both accurate and profitable. And so, when we come to the conclusion of John's gospel, as we do when we come to the last two verses, and really John now is writing, it is switched from this instance between Peter, the John, and the Lord, to John now bringing to a conclusion this record which he has written. And it is something, if you take the time, and I trust that you will take the time to consistently read through the, the, the books of the Bible consecutively, so that you can get an understanding of them. And John's Gospel in itself is a wonderful Gospel. And John is now writing, and he says three particular things, which I think in closing are very important for us to understand when we think of John's Gospel. The first thing that he says about this, which he has written, is that it is a true record, a true record. This is the disciple who's bearing witness about things, who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Isn't that not wonderful? Does that not grab yourself? And we know. Isn't it a, an incredible thing? And it's a wonderful study in Scripture to look through these things for the believer. These things that we know of the truth of the Word of God, that God through His Spirit has revealed to us. Not that we, we, we don't, we're not dealing with shades of gray. We're not dealing with maybes and, and perhapses and so on. These are things that we know of a surety. And as John writes these things, he says that you can absolutely rely on what has been written because we know that this testimony is true. He says also But in terms of all the things that the Lord Jesus did, it is a limited record. Could what we have as 21 chapters in our Bible encompass everything that the Lord Jesus did and said and is? Not a chance. But as He says at the end of chapter 20, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name so much that He did a true record, a limited record, but it's a sufficient record. It's enough. If you read this book of your Bible with an open heart, it is enough to convince you that this one who walked the scene of this earth 2,000 years ago is the very Son of God. And as John says, we know that His testimony is is true. And so now, Peter, I guess the Lord is going to ascend to heaven very shortly after this, and Peter and the rest of these disciples are going to be left to carry out this which they have been commissioned to do, the great commission from the end of Matthew's gospel, this commission that Peter has been given to be a shepherd and to bring into being the New Testament church. But there is that challenge to us, though not? Of our love and our devotion. That which we would seek to do, that which we would seek to do wholeheartedly and focused upon Christ, as we would seek to serve Him in our day and generation.